All right, guys. Well, as I said, uh, we are going to try to wrap this up on inflammation. I'm going to say right up front, this has been extremely worthwhile for me because I count myself in the people who just did not understand exactly what inflammation means physiologically. And I started our first couple of sessions on this, uh, trying to investigate and describe some of the mechanisms. And, and even in my post today, just announcing that we would be on with this topic, I made mention that I, I think we are doing ourselves a disservice by calling it inflammation. Um, I, I just don't think that is a useful term any longer because everything is inflammation, right? Like everybody blames everything on inflammation and it seems so uh, so minor in terms of what what you could be describing. And, it, and it's truly an immune system response. So inflammation, whether it's chronic or acute, is your body, including your, your nervous system, your immune system, your endocrine system, all being in a battle posture. Something is causing those systems in your body to be on guard for a fight. You're in fight or flight mode. And so in, in an acute situation, you would deem that very normal. I, I just wrote uh, an ebook to complement what we're doing here. And I gave the examples of, you know, hey, you sprain your ankle, it swells up, it's painful, it's red, that's inflammation. You get a bee sting, that's inflammation. You get COVID, that's inflammation. Um, but what we don't necessarily account for is the low-grade chronic inflammation that then creates, as you're going to see in a couple of these slides today, an actual field bed or soil for almost every kind of disease and malady we can incur. So I really hope by the end of today, you'll see how important it is to do everything you can to keep systemic inflammation in your body down. <laughs> Excuse me. And we can even consider inflammation uh, as, as we're thinking of it again, as that immune system heightened response ready posturing as just not good. You you want those soldiers well rested and fed and and you know ready to be called upon when necessary. You don't want them all haggard and wandering around all day long. Uh, looking for ghosts that just don't exist. And that's what happens through diet, through inactivity, and through some of the environmental and lifestyle stressors that we're going to talk about today. So I, I'm certainly not going to go through a, you know, a, a complete review of everything we've done in the first four uh, episodes, but that, that was all about the diet. It, it certainly discussed inflammation mechanistically, but then we went into sugar and fat and so forth and what happens at those levels. We're not going to cover that at all. What I want to discuss today are all of the other things that can keep us in that low-grade chronic state and what's happening uh, to the nervous system in that, that um, you know, within those parameters, some of the things that we can do and what really, really is happening uh, under the surface. So you'll, you'll see we're going to talk about sleep and stress and environmental things and so forth. Uh, even in case I forget, let me let me touch upon these bottom couple insufficient meaningful relationships, general unhappiness, depression, anxiety. You guys are probably aware of the around 85 year old or 85 year running longitudinal study on happiness through Harvard. And this goes all the way back 
uh, I think you know John F. Kennedy was part of this study and so forth. They they did this with with current students from Harvard at that era in, in the I guess it would be the fifties and then all forward and um, longevity. Like just like, are you still alive? Are you healthy? Or you, you know, what 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 can we dictate? Was the impetus for that and correlating happiness and all of these things came down to them having meaningful relationships. And we're going to talk about how that kind of unsettled stress in our brain, which can be from self-imposed anxiety or depression or environmentally imposed anxiety and depression, people who economically can't even support their own children and so forth. They have systemic ongoing anxiety, depression, and so forth that creates inflammatory response in the body, which then lead to ill health, which then lead to higher mortality rates and so forth. All of these things become so cyclical and it, it's, it becomes very entangled. But at the same time, if you go back to the I want to say heuristics and the cliches of what good health is, you'll see how they are all tied to this one space and why that is both incredibly important to understand and deal with, but also why it makes it difficult to do so. So uh, first little study that I wanted to point to, to uh, in, in your direction these are mostly meta-analyses and position papers, articles that researchers write to just compile and catch everybody up on the current state of a topic. Uh, I'm not going to go through any kind of actual study and the methods and the subjects and here's what they found and so forth. This is going to be very, very educational from a, a broad swath. So the, the title here, uh, the anti-inflammatory effects of exercise mechanisms and implications for the prevention and treatment of disease. <clears throat> This was actually in Nature, um, which, if you know anything about research, is you know pretty meaningful. A lot of clout there. Um, let me see. I mean, even something like this, almost thirteen hundred citations, shows that um, was an important uh, work at that time, two thousand eleven. But let's get into some of this. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna not read everything that I have on these slides. Some of it's here just for my own notes. But I do want to read some of these key points. Physical inactivity increases the risk of type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, colon cancer, breast cancer, dementia, and depression, and on and on and on. Some of the things that we're going to gloss over here is the fact that almost every single physical malady you can incur can be related to inflammation in some way. So it becomes our um, response to that to see if there's real correlation. And, and how we can then deal with that. Th these are two-way paths where something can cause inflammation or inflammation can cause that same thing. And so it's it's literally like a two-way highway in many, many cases and therefore hard to, to draw hard conclusions. But there are some theories in this, like, like why, why are we throwing in inactivity? Why would exercise, why would intentional movement decrease inflammation? There are, uh, uh, I think, three main theories, which we'll get into here. Physical inactivity leads to the accumulation of visceral fat and consequently the activation of network inflammatory pathways. So remember that fat collectively is an organ and with all of the signaling, when you are in a calorie 
abundant position, a positive energy balance, and you are storing body fat, there are signaling mechanisms right inside body fat cells that are pro-inflammatory that create inflammation. Um, and, and that's, that's one reason that we know just directly, uh, increasing body fat increases inflammation. So it stands to reason that exercise would generally lead to decrease in body fat. But this is where I have to say, not always, not always. You can exercise and not lose body fat. And yet still that exercise does decrease inflammation. It decreases inflammatory markers like C-reactive protein. So while that statement is true, uh, decreasing body fat would decrease inflammation. That's not the only mechanism here at play. So this protective effect of exercise against chronic inflammation associated disease may to some extent be ascribed to anti-inflammatory effect of regular exercise, which, which it does. And we'll, we'll get into some of those. I'm not going to get heavy into the biochemistry. Um, but when you get into these things like interleukin-6 and all of these things, um, uh, toll-like receptor expression, cytokine production, antigen presentation, you can see, I, I hope you feel some of the weight of why researchers and biochemists and people who do this for a living and spend their careers doing so really have command of information that, that we take for granted. For example, it is not lost on me that the internet and social media makes people feel like they are all experts on everything because they simply read one headline or they saw the, the article, didn't read it, didn't understand it if they did, or one of their favorite influencers said, hey, because of this, here's what I believe. And so we just adopt those beliefs. All of this singularity of information and accessibility to opinions makes us settle into our own opinions too easily. So I just want you to forever be on guard for that. It's one of the reasons why we're even doing these research reviews is to dig a little bit deeper sometimes into the science. Sometimes we are just getting a bird's eye view. But when we don't go into some of these super, super, super deep biochemical details, it's going to be because I just don't think it's that relevant to, to what we need to uncover. But I want you to know they are there. So sometimes I do put things in these slides and presentations you know, just for that point, just for you to see some of the information that's there. Um, although regular moderate exercise is associated with reduced incidence of infection compared to a completely sedentary state, the long hours of hard training undertaken by elite athletes appear to make these individuals more susceptible to infections. This is also probably attributable to the anti-inflammatory effects of exercise inducing a degree of immunosuppression. So that seems a little contradictory. And that's where I want to make sure that you're focused on just not adopting one opinion or one answer and saying, oh, there it is. Close that book. I know everything I need to know. You still have to act on some information for your own health, but leave your mind open enough to realize even what we know from the best research, future researchers may go deeper and deeper and i'm sure they will and find out other reasons that you know it may change your understanding in most cases we're heading down the right path but sometimes we add information so 
Uh, important remaining questions on the anti-inflammatory effects of exercise include what is the independent contribution of an exercise-induced reduction visceral fat versus other exercise-induced anti-inflammatory mechanisms? What is a relative importance of the different anti-inflammatory mechanisms? As I said on the last slide, all those different biochemical pathways. Even what modes, intensities, and durations of exercise are required to optimize the anti-inflammatory effects. Back in that previous slide where they talked about people who exercise harder are sometimes more uh, susceptible to infection and so forth because of overtraining, because of the overload of cortisol and getting mono-like symptoms. So inflammation creates that status in your body where the immune system is always on guard. Well, so can overtraining. And so exercise can create inflammation and yet exercise can also decrease inflammation. I think the best way to think about it is acute aggressive exercise is going to increase inflammation for a short period of time. It just will. It's going to increase cortisol and so forth, but that both makes you more resilient to those responses later, your, your increases in cardiovascular health, VO2 max, uh, all of the mechanisms that we're not even going to cover make you more resilient. So it's not that you shouldn't exercise too hard. It's that you need to know how to properly dose that with frequency and duration and so forth and not get too crazy. You can't be like an Olympic athlete who's training eight hours a day. That's not even healthy for them. But another thing that this particular study didn't go over, and I, I, I saw a few studies that did address some of these neurological changes, but I would also like answer the question, why does exercise decrease inflammation? This particular meta-analysis did not really cover some of the brain changes like endorphins, dopamine, serotonin, pain perception, signaling, some of the remodeling in the brain um, that can then decrease overall stress. Uh, there, there's a lot, again, this being a two-way street that was not really addressed in this particular study, but I think they did a good job of giving kind of that survey. So one of the things that I mentioned here, I'm not going to go through this whole thing, is when you look at fat as an organ and you see these adipocytes and the actual fat storage, you also see the immune system. It's, this is like outposts. This is like our military having a base in the Philippines and Japan and Germany embedded in fat cells are deep connections to the nervous system, the endocrine system, the immune system. And so when you are again in these positive calorie, positive energy balances, and just the act of body fat increasing starts signaling for pro-inflammatory activity, you just see that that increases low-grade inflammation over time consistently and then that's what gives you all those increased risks of disease. So again, I'm not going to go through all of this. I just want you to see how complex this is, especially with a couple of things that were important to me in, in this series, which is this fat as an organ, as a, as a structure that is not just the inert storage of, of fatty acids. Uh, and then all of the connections to the nervous system, the immune system, the endocrine system, uh, and just those fluctuations in our internal states, how it, how our body responds via the immune system. So recent reviews is just kind of a uh, summary statement. Recent reviews on the inflammatory effects of exercise have focused on three possible mechanisms. As I mentioned, the reduction of visceral fast, fat mass, increased production, release of anti-inflammatory cytokines from contracting skeletal muscle, 
and reduced expression of, of toll-like receptors on monocytes and macrophages. And uh, in, parenthetically, uh, this is important as well, you know, the inhibition and maybe the opposite of inhibition, the activity of downstream responses. So even from those actions, this is where future research may say, and this, and that, and this, and we didn't really recognize this before, and we just discovered this. So these are things we can measure and see, but I guarantee it's not the end of the story. You know, in 50 years, somebody looking at this topic is go going to have a lot more information. So uh, then getting into what's happening with the adrenaline, the epinephrine, norepinephrine, you know, look at the kidneys and, and what's happening with, with those and cortisol in that balance between anabolism and catabolism in, in building versus, uh, you know, creating inflammation. Again, not going to go through all this. I, I just want you to be aware that this is just how much complexity there is when we're talking about every element of inflammation. Um, and I'm going to, I told you, I'm going to skip a lot of these things because I know we're going to run out of time, but this just gets back into how exercise does even, even start interacting with the central nervous system and, you know, as well as, you know, what that means, <coughs> excuse me, in a, the, the way that the body almost mimics exercise in that pro-inflammatory state when we're under general stress. This is going to come up later when we talk about lack of sleep and mental anxiety and mental stress. But when the sympathetic nervous system is activated, which it is when we are training, and you get these initial pro-inflammatory responses – there, there is some risk to that, but the reward is that you are becoming healthier and less, um, or or more resistant to inflammation later. So, um, stress in general, this particular meta-analysis, they're not talking about just mental stress. That is part of it. They're talking about physiological stress, and and this is where, excuse me, we are going to dive into some of the commonality points of, of inflammation across all of these systems. And I will warn you that I, I'm pretty sure this was interpreted, translated from Chinese. And so some of the language, even in the printed study, I don't know why they didn't have better editors, but some of it's difficult to understand or, or read. But let me go through just a couple statements. Like I said, I'm not going to make you wade through all this stuff. Stress is a state of threatened homeostasis provoked by a psychological, environmental, or physiological stressor. With rapid development of science and technology, as well as economy and strong social competition, the nature of stress has changed dramatically. Stressful events engender multiple neurochemical, neurotransmitter, and hormonal alterations by mainly activating the sympathetic nervous system and the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. When stress stimuli are under control, the body responds to these in the physiological way. That's one of those weird statements um, through translation, but in the normal physiological way, in the appropriate way. So um, all to say that... All of these systems and all of these these um, mechanisms of creating stress is quite changing in our society, and 
you guys have all heard this from social media and everything else that that we're just not dealing with it as effectively culturally or socially or psychologically. So some of the things I wanted to point out through this meta-analysis, because it was rather lengthy, I'll just read. There exists communication between the neuroendocrine and immune systems, something I've said a few minutes ago that I, I want you to understand how these systems communicate with each other. <clears throat> Both pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory me mechanisms depend on the type and intensity of stressor. Acute stressors seem to enhance immune function, like training, uh, whereas chronic stressors are suppressive. So they kind of grind down your body's ability to respond to those uh, things. And that's why we get some autoimmune effects, which we'll cover later. Intense stressors overactivate the immune system, leading to the imbalance of inflammation and anti-inflammation. Um, skipping down, in addition to peripheral inflammation, central inflammation, namely neuroinflammation, has also been found in stress condition. This is one of those things that goes both ways, which I think we're going to cover in a couple slides. But but just keep in mind that connection between the, the immune system, the central nervous system, which includes your brain, which includes your mind, quote, you know, perception of these things. Classically, inflammation is classically known, another one of those translation things, as the crucial response to microbe invasion or tissue injury to keep maintenance of tissue homeostasis. In recent years, our knowledge of the, inf of the inflammation role is greatly enlarged. Inflammatory pathway has been recognized as a pivotal molecular basis in the pathogenesis of many chronic diseases. So I think that made sense on face value. Uh, accumulating research, accumulating researches, uh, suggested that excessive inflammation plays critical roles in relationship between stress and stress-related disease. Uh, stressful experiences are fundamental in the provocation of major depression disorder. So this is what we're going to talk about, depression and anxiety. Uh, recently, the cytokine hypothesis or macrophage theory has been suggested in major depression disorder, um, which is very interesting. I think that'll be new for a lot of people. The role of stress in inflammation are being recognized in neurodegenerative disease, such as Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. Uh, so chronic stress has been demonstrated to account for a place in physiological and pathological disease outcomes, including several types of cancer, as we talked about, um, on and on. So it's a big deal. Uh, again, when we think about inflammation and how we use that word, if we all walk away from this series understanding that this is the whole ball game for preventing disease every time you eat something in a in a healthy way versus unhealthy you're improving your your inflammatory uh let's call it the soil as they did in this uh, metaphor uh anytime you're getting sleep versus not sleep you're, you're making a positive or negative change in your body's chronic levels of inflammation mental anxiety versus being mindful and controlling your thoughts and internal stress. All of those things matter to such a, a great degree that it goes well beyond the aesthetics of just losing weight and looking better. Uh, many of us have goals that are multifaceted. We want to prevent cancer. We want to prevent heart disease and so forth. It's not just the accumulation of body fat that does that. It's the accumulation of body fat that increases this low-grade chronic inflammation that then creates these correlates. So they they simply, with, with all of those large statements in this meta-analysis, 
again, created this metaphor of uh, you're trying to create this life, which can be like a plant, and all of the roots are potentially in the soil that the soil is either going to be one of constant low-grade chronic inflammation or it's going to be healthy, good, nutrient-dense soil. And you can't create a healthy body, a healthy human experience if all you are feeding your body environmentally, mentally, or physically through diet and exercise, if you're just feeding your body inflammation. So moving from all of the biochemistry uh, I want to talk a little bit more after this study about some of the other lifestyle factors. But in summary, through disturbing the balance of the immune system, stress induces inflammation peripherally and centrally. This imbalance leads to diversified stress-related diseases. Although there may be various different triggering events, they appear to converge on inflammation. Then it gets into cardiovascular disease, et cetera, including depression, neurogenitive disease, uh, on and on and on. So, Let's move into uh, the last couple. I, I'm, I'm trying to get through this pretty quickly because I know uh, we're, we're going to hopefully have some good contributions. Uh, and, I, and I want, as we close out the series, to have a lot of, a lot of voices uh, to listen to here. So how sleep deprivation can cause inflammation. This is just kind of an article from, from Harvard, their School of Public Health. Um, really good, good, condensed, concise information, though. Inflammation is the body's natural response to disease and injury. You keep hearing that over and over. When you come down with a respiratory infection or cut yourself, your immune system activates white blood cells, which in turn release cytokines and other inflammatory molecules that attack invaders to protect the body's tissues, things we talked about since the second episode in the series. When this response is temporary, it serves as an effective defense mechanism, but when inflammation doesn't let up, it can contribute to the development of heart disease, diabetes, stroke, cancer, Alzheimer's disease, et cetera, et cetera. Sleep deprivation is associated with markers of inflammation, such as increases in inflammatory molecules. And again, all these different cytokines, C-reactive protein. They, they bring up a couple of specific points that I don't think anybody is ready to draw exact correlations that uh, in, in a direct mechanical study, this will do this. But I don't think we need to make that jump outside of logic. For example, during sleep, blood pressure drops and blood vessels relax. When sleep is restricted, blood pressure doesn't decline as it should, which could trigger cells and blood vessel walls that activate inflammation. A lack of sleep also alters the body's stress response system. Um, it's going to be coming up. Yeah, I think this is it here. This was fascinating to me. In addition, a, a sleep shortfall interferes with the normal function of the brain's house cleaning system, turned the glymphatic system, not to be confused with the lymphatic system. In the deepest sleep phases, cerebral spinal fluid rushes through the brain, sweeping away beta amyloid protein, which you hear always linked with Alzheimer's. Without a good night's sleep, this house cleaning process is less thorough, allowing uh, those proteins to build up and inflammation to develop in your brain. Thus, the vicious cycle sets in. Beta amyloid buildup in the brain's frontal lobe starts to impair deeper non-REM sleep. And so then you just get worse inflammation, which gives you worse you know, amyloid buildup, blah, 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 blah. So again, if we are not at least conscious on some level of what's happening through all of these systems in our body, I think it's it's more injurious to our behavior. It's easier to do things not aligned with our goals. If you can directly correlate, which is what I'm trying to do, these behaviors, eating this food versus that, 
exercising consistently or not, getting enough sleep or not, taking care of your mental health or not, if you can link it to these very specific activities and responses in your body and how that literally sets up the state of disease that then you will you will futuristically have to endure and they may kill you, they may decrease longevity, they may make quality of life uh, that much worse. I, I think it's it's going to spur more people into action. So that's that's kind of my goal here by being this specific. So let's talk about some of the the mental affect parts. I I specifically included that phrasing on major uh, depression. So the role of inflammation in depression and fatigue. Uh, again, think of this as a two-way street. The most recent literature has shown an undeniable relationship between the activity of the immune system and neurological changes, along with subsequent psychological symptoms. One of the main focuses of this field is the role of the immune system in mental health and psychological disorders. Immune-mediated diseases of the central nervous system, such as MS, uh, multiple sclerosis, and disease-modifying therapies that affect the immune systems, such as interferons, are good models that explore or to explore this association. Uh, skipping on here, early observations about the link between the immune system and psychological responses occurred in the context of cytokine-induced sickness behavior and immunotherapy, such as interferon, blah, 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 blah. Um, so kind of a chicken or egg question, although I don't think it matters that much, because I do think you'll you'll see how this implicates a, a two-way mechanism. If what what they're saying is if you have a highly inflamed body, if your homeostasis leans toward I'm overstressed, I'm overworked, I'm not getting enough sleep, I'm always in this constant state of inflammatory processes, the biochemistry of your brain changes to the point where you start feeling depression. You may not have been. Uh, prone to something like that as a diagnosable affect disorder, and then all of a sudden you're battling it. And that's where the previous meta-analysis spoke of today's culture and these extra stressors are just way different than we were biologically evolved to handle. And so it does create that, that cycle uh, that the Harvard paper discussed, how you just get in this vicious cycle that one begets the other. Um, I will also say that depression, if you were to see it as a psychological phenomena and not this immunological phenomena, when you start letting your mind become depressed, and you you hear us talk about this a lot here, that will in turn create direct inflammatory processes. So that's why you've heard laughter is the best medicine. You've heard like, wow, here's a study that shows the people who laugh more, they have more of this, uh, you know, anti-inflammatory marker in their body, not pro-inflammatory. Um, I think I may have said that wrong a couple of times now that I just hear myself contrast those two terms, pro-inflammatory. If something is pro-inflammatory, that means that it's promoting inflammatory processes in your body. I may have said anti-inflammatory a couple of times. Uh, but anyway, um, th this is this is really interesting. If if you think of how one causes the other, and then that makes it in spiral into that never-ending downward um, space of getting more and more and more depressed, more and more physiologically inflamed, you can see how that's going to just create the propensity for 
literal physical disease. Previous meta-analyses have shown an increase in pro-inflammatory cytokines such as TNF-alpha, blah, blah, blah. Um, what did I want? I think this is one that I said. Oh, maybe it's at the bottom one. A longitudinal study showed that people with higher interleukin-6, age nine, are more likely to have depression at 18. So again, inflammation, just physical inflammation, which can come from a lot of different things. Uh, we know long COVID, for example, it, that you know a marker is higher systemic inflammation that you're going to see a massive increase in depression later and so the the physical uh inflammation is creating psychological depression and then it starts starts looping downward links between the peripheral inflammation which is kind of what i'm describing in your body and changes in the central nervous system in depression fatigue increased uh, inflammation is seen in the periphery in both depression and fatigue this inflammation leads to increased permeability of the blood-brain barrier, allowing for easier entry of inflammatory molecules or immune cells into the central nervous system. So that's the mechanism of why systemic inflammation, peripheral inflammation in your body, that state that just poor health, poor nutrition, inactivity, poor sleep, all of a sudden these byproducts are getting into your brain through the blood-brain barrier and creating now psychological trauma. So. All right. Um, I hope I saved enough information for everybody else to jump in who wants to comment. But as a wrap up of just why guarding against systemic inflammation, what it truly is and how we can mitigate it, uh, I would just love to hear some summary statements from some of our health and medical professionals here on the call uh, who may have some different emphasis than than I have expressed throughout the series. So. Uh, first of all, Kevin, uh, I know you just kind of went off screen, but you, you, you've been a little quiet through the series. I anything that you have specifically that um, that you think could, could help clients or people understand? I'm glad you started with the disclaimer of just inflammation because it is a activating term for me in general, just because it's very fantasiac. That's a term, but it's a it's, you know can have a, a a nebulous meaning that's you know just taken out of context but um there's no denying of what it can do and have manifestations later on and how i how i, how I would like to explain it to clients that are serious about this or or just concerned or just have questions and i think of the graphic you have shared some time ago with when it was talking about training and how you um if you don't train or if you rather if you don't um, get rest within training sufficiently you just continue to compound those negative effects and it just leads to overtraining and whatnot mm -hmm. that's how they picture this is just the compounding effects of lifestyle disease processes etc and how that all factors into it it's all risk it's all, and that's what risk stratification is when it comes to you know the clinical picture and what's going on but you know, it, and that's, I, you know, I know, Jen, you've mentioned the importance of context and just how, you know, if one is doing, you know, if I'm were to eat a donuts, is that going to negatively affect me right away or, you know, acutely? Likely not, but given the context of my health status and all these variables at play. And that's what I think people need to understand is it can be very, very convoluted and complicated. Um, and easy to go down that rabbit hole, but 
keep context, keep realism and sensibility all in the center of, of this, but don't dismiss the importance of it either. But, you know, I guess that's the big thing is it's, it's obviously always contextual. There's a lot of variables at play, but don't, don't still neglect the basics of essential living, which are activity, proper nutrition, healthy nutrition, high quality nutrition, all these things that are fundamental and basic to us, but there's no denying how powerful they are to maintenance and to improve health. And, you know, I'll just end it there. No. And so I'm glad you brought up that picture. It's a, it's a classic graph that shows, you know, training stimulus versus overtraining. And, and it goes hand in hand with this cortisol and an acute inflammatory response, which is you do something like exercise and it, it, it homeostatically kind of moves you down in this position of now you're a little bit weaker. That muscle tissue is overworked, inflamed, stressed a little bit. And then you have an inflammatory response, which is adaptive. It's to make those muscle fibers, you know, fibrils, actin, myosin, a little thicker, a little stronger. And then on the other side, given enough time, which was your point, now you've adapted to be stronger. Now you get the benefits of being more resilient to tissue injury in this case. Um, and But if you just keep driving yourself down and down and down and down, then you never get the impact that positively you just get compounding negative impact as you described in risk stratification. So yes, you add poor sleep, poor nutrition, poor this, you're just driving that down. Um, and that's why we're, we're going to start as a company to create more resources like this. Here's something I'm not going to release right away, but it's a little 16 page ebook to complement what we learned here. Very introductory on inflammation. I just want to show you the table of contents. What is inflammation, acute versus chronic inflammation, lifestyle impact, diet implications, rules for fat intake, carbohydrate intake, protein intake, exercise, the bottom line, which I'll show you here in a second, health and medical support, tools and resources. So, you know, things like this to understand what's happening, um, you know, even down into one of my favorite part of this chart, because I love graphics that or this ebook that make things easy to see is this interplay. I know this is probably small for you to see, but if I could put this in a little chart of two categories like food versus lifestyle and lifestyle, I'm including movement, which is exercise. You know, how do we address trying to create an anti-inflammatory environment in our body? You know, we have to start with the majors first, major on the majors and then work on the minors. So strive to achieve a healthy body weight, keep that adipose tissue, that organ at a place where it's naturally in its physical state, less inflammatory. Start working on building intrinsic motivation that will help you make better food decisions and lifestyle decisions, which could include a flexible approach to nutrition, not dogmatic and restrictive quality food focus, making sure that you're working on low trans fats, low sugar, uh, environmental stressors, movement, mindset, play, things like that. Like, I, I think if if we can walk away from this series, looking at the fact that all of these diseases are embedded in that soil of inflammation, then it hopefully helps us build that intrinsic motivation to do something proactively about it. But uh, very well said, Kevin. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get out of this share and let uh, Jen come in. Yeah, I so a couple things that I'll just add because this this is huge. So how do we address all of this? 
Uh, I think it's been a, a really great intro, and I think it's important because we can begin to wrap our heads around uh, the complexity of this. One thing that um, jumped off the page to me during your presentation, Joe, was the paper that talked about how you know nine-year-olds can be setting themselves up for these changes by the time they're 18. And this is why it's very important for us in healthcare um, to look at adverse childhood experiences. So, so looking at ACE scores, because the individuals who have high adverse childhood experiences have a couple of things going on. They have this chronic stress. Um, and not only do they have the chronic stress of their environment, but they're growing into it. So in other words, they are their their brains are forming in that milieu. So they are laying down um, programming and they are laying they're laying down um, neural networks in in a milieu that is um, potentially dangerous, um, highly threatening, uh, bathed with uh, cortisol, adrenaline, um, inflammatory markers and things. And these these aces, as we know, because this has been talked about in previous podcasts with TDD, um, you know, they're they're one of the factors that can lead to eating disorders. Um, later in life, they have been associated with obesity. And, you know, it it makes a lot of sense in that what happens with these individuals is their brains are programmed in a certain way and they have very reactive um, fight or flight responses that um, that come up and and they're they're more powerful than than the cognitive thinking part. These are old built-in circuits. And so these individuals are at the highest risk for obesity, stress-related diseases, um, inflammatory diseases, mental health problems, things like that. So I think it's it may be something that, um, as we develop good relationships with clients, um, you know, not necessarily taking ACE scores the first time you meet somebody, but um, it's something that coaches probably should have their um, their their antennae, shall we say, up for, uh, because this can help to identify the people who are at the greatest risk. They may not look necessarily to be at the greatest risk. Um, if you look at them in terms of their body habitus or the statements they make or things like that, but but these individuals are programmed to protect themselves with whatever. This is why so many eating disorders are so difficult to even detect. Um, and you know, the, these are individuals who may not respond as respect as expected to dietary interventions, physical activity interventions. And things because they have this old programming running. And so it's going to be part of the process is to create new neural pathways. So I think that that, that section on the intrinsic motivation is important because when we have people wanting to move into something new, um, that means that they are psychologically ready um, to to address things that are holding them back now and move forward. And I think it's also um, one of those things, again, that coaches can be very attuned to and, and very slowly and gently um, 
learn to guide their their clients in a helpful way without taking too big of a steps. Does that make sense? I, I love the way you see a seam in information or topics and just pull it apart and, and expand it perfectly. I, I, I'm glad that resonated with you on the kids. Um, as, as a side note, Dr. Robert Sapolsky, who's a neuroendocrinologist and primatologist, he retired from Stanford Medical School a couple years ago. His his seminal book that he published after he retired is called Behave. I think it's one of the best books you could ever read on human behavior. And I'm excited that he has another book coming out this fall called Determined, because it speaks to what you're describing, Jen, which is so much of our brain, which was developed in certain environments from uh, – you know, a, a fetus in that maternal environment to our young developing brain infancies and childhoods. So much of that wiring is what makes us who we are. And yet, even though there is the potential for neuroplasticity, it, it shows why it's such a grind to get there and why it takes a lot of determination and work. So if, if anybody, I would recommend that you go to just as a little plug for him on YouTube, if you Search for Robert Napolsky or not Napolsky, uh, uh Sapolsky. Sapolsky, yeah. I, I was I was getting two two names, Doc. Yeah, uh, another guy in there. So Dr. Robert Sapolsky, and he has a 20-part Stanford, it's like neuroendocrinology 101 thing. It's just a 20-part hour. Each episode is an hour long. He literally just filmed his lectures for a whole semester. Every I go through this every year as just a ritual. Like every year, I rewatch that entire course because it's one of the greatest things you can do to understand the human brain. So I definitely nice. appreciate those comments, Jen. In something like inflammation, we're never going to cover it to a to an nth degree. But I've always perceived my interest in a very clinical way. I'm not a researcher for a reason. I'm not an academic for a reason. I work directly with people because it's my greatest interest to take the information we can and help people improve their lives. I want to see people happier. I want to see people more functional. I want to see people healthier, more, more imbued with, with purpose and intent. And so that's always going to be my end of the day premise for everything that we apply or, or I should say everything we discuss to apply it to people who can use it. So that's why I'm excited to get things out like this little ebook. Um, I constantly push people toward our research reviews because I think the things we cover, the topics we investigate and your contributions are always so great. When we work at the levels that we can impact the most, so improving our diet, improving intentional movement, the things that I'm doing with this new interest in somatic yoga, where a totally addressing just the nervous system. I mean, that's all I'm doing when I'm on the floor of my yoga instructor's room. It's just fascinating. Um, yeah. You know, meditation, what, you know, what, anything, yes. all those things are super <clears throat> important. I'm going to sign off. I got to run. Okay. But, right, uh, it's you. been awesome. I'll see you next week. Okay. Amy, are you going to jump in and say something before we go? Just same thing that like, it's been such a fascinating topic and it is so huge. I mean, really learning about the, systems in the body and how they all interact. I mean, bringing in the mental component today and how powerful that influence has on our body overall is, is also really important to think about. And yeah, I'd love it. I mean, inflammation, I think people gets a bad rap, but it also doesn't get enough of a, an, enough of a bad rap to really scare people into change. Hmm. Perfectly said. 
All right, guys. Well, you have a great Friday afternoon and rest of your weekend, and we'll see what we can get into next week.